Are you tired of men monopolizing the word mansplaining? We are here to provide relief from the drone of men explaining to women how to be a proper lady. And instead, we are here to tell you how to be a proper man. Welcome to Mansplaining, an explication of hypermasculinity in pop culture. I'm Kay Grossman. And I'm Brittany Meredith. Hey, welcome back uh, to episode number three of the Reboot. Absolutely. And guys, we're in the month of love. Welcome to February. My favorite. I lo- Fun fact, I love love. I love weddings. I love good, cute romance stories. Ugh. Obsessed. I think they're disgusting. <laughs> and I hate hearing about them. Uh, I feel like my teenagers are in mating season right now. I'm walking through the halls of the high school and they're make they're doing like makeout sessions and it's me just screaming ew at the top of my lungs until they get a- so embarrassed that they stop. Good old public shaming. Yeah, I'm I'm a good teacher. So originally we were going to watch John Wick. So what we want to do is spend a little time talking about it. Why we're not doing an episode on it. First of all, let me tell you, when we're not doing this episode because we didn't love John Wick. That's a lot of double negatives. But man, I loved this movie. I loved the dog. I loved the action scenes. I loved just how ridiculous and bombastic it was. When uh, you when you think about it, John Wick is the perfect love story. A man and his dog. A man and his wife. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, the entire movie, uh, we were reading Hamlet with my seniors, and the big question we're talking about is, is Hamlet inspired by love or by revenge? And as we were watching John Wick... Uh, the same question <laughs> appears. It so was. really, John Wick, modern day Hamlet. Yeah. Shakespeare would be proud. He would. He would. Uh, I would say John Wick is an only really inspired and motivated by love the love of his dog the love of his wife and really just stricken with the same amount of grief that hamlet was when you think about it maybe even more grief perhaps more so we tried to record an episode about this one but john wick just doesn't give a lot to work with it was a great movie but there's not there's a grand total of two women one is put in a refrigerator once just, I mean, she's great. She's a great assassin, but not a lot to go with with gender roles. Um, you know, sometimes the, the simplest movies are the best movies because you can't go wrong if you don't put a lot of stuff in. And I mean, that's what they did, man. We're not talking about that. So instead, we decided we'd kick off our Valentine's Day month of episode. So in this episode, we're going to start talking about love. Whitney, you hate love, but how did you know you loved Ryan? I have two stories. The one's really boring. So I think I knew I loved Ryan when he was sick. This was when we were in college because me and Ryan married when we were practically fetuses. I was 21 and we lived together for a year at that point. I think two years. Math is he was sick and I came to take care of him. Uh, but what the story I like to tell about the beginning of me and Ryan's the relationship. More interesting the more interesting and embarrassing. And incredibly embarrassing story. So uh, Ryan and I actually met uh, when it was onboarding for Missouri State. That's where we both went to college in Springfield, Missouri. And we became best friends very quickly over a shared interest 
of Monty Python. Anyhow, that part's boring. So we became best friends and then we made very bad decisions together for our entire freshman year. And then sophomore year, fast forward, uh, Ryan is taking a creative writing class. And this is after I, as Ryan's best friend, took care of him when he was sick. And I had the epiphany that, oh my God, I love my best friend, which is the oldest story ever. It's yeah, so like boring. You are- such a cliche I am such a cliche like it's like I had that moment I was like fuck this again you know uh so Ryan was taking a creative writing class and he wrote this story uh called uh so damn sad and cute or something it was about these two people and questioning if they loved each other if they're you know um on antidepressants and anyway I was convinced that the girl in question was me she had auburn hair. Do I have auburn hair? No, I have red hair, but just follow me. You thought it was creative license. Yes, yes. I was like, this girl is me. He would describe this girl, and she was kind of naive and cute and scrunched her nose and wow. All the things you famously do. Yes, yes, sure. Also known as everything every other woman famously does, but I was a, it was wild. And I was, you know, sharing this with my friends, being like, this girl's me, right? Like, read the story. This girl's me. And everyone was not being a great friend and they were like absolutely so anyway it is fall break ryan is listening to this story and trying not to just die it's fall break and there's a party that my roommate invites us to and i get very very intoxicated and i remember honestly not being able to open my eyes um, because I was so tired because I, I at this point I think I was an undiagnosed diabetic and didn't know it and when you consume a lot of alcohol it kind of impacts your ability to stay awake very much and I go Ryan that story you wrote that was about me wasn't it and Ryan looks at me and he literally starts laughing and he's like <laughs> no <laughs> and I thought I was going to die but then he kissed me And that was the most only James Bond thing that he's ever done. And also the starting of our relationship. Precious. Precious. Okay. Precious and embarrassing. I love it. It's terribly embarrassing. It is a good story to tell, though. Yeah, it's it's my favorite kind of story. Yeah. Okay, Kate. I (laughs) am very familiar with this story, and I'm really excited for you to tell the world. So um, how I knew I love my partner. Um, I should say this. How I knew that we were going to be together forever because we were already engaged to be married at this point. So the first time we got engaged, we'd been dating six months. I don't regret that choice because it worked out, but I don't necessarily recommend this to future people. Um, We were, so when we first got engaged, we were just straight out of college, we'd been dating six months, neither of us wanted to do a long-term relationship. So naturally, it's either, do we break up or do we get married? You know, the seminal question. So we decided, you know, just unceremoniously, I guess we're going to get married. So that's how we got engaged. But six months later, give or take, in February, around Valentine's Day, I... Jay and I were talking about how, you know, well, we never really had a proper proposal. We never really did the did the thing down on one knee, the whole works. So Jacob planned a trip back to our college town, back to the place where I drunkenly said, you know what, I'd marry you. Um, and 
So we planned this whole trip, dinner, everything, got this real sexy dress. It was great. And then we're crossing the street to the courthouse, to the square where Jacob's going to get down on one knee because I know him and he is bad at keeping secrets. I get hit by a Ford F-150. <laughs> and... <laughs> I've never um, not laughed when you told this story. <laughs> it it's great. Um, I mean, at the time it was less great. Um, I want to point out that this truck was driven by the most hillbilly of hillbillies, who told me, "Oh, you're lucky. I'm a race car driver. That's why I was able to stop so fast." <laughs> After he had literally run his truck into my body. <laughs> So, um, I didn't go to the hospital that night. I don't know why. I think I was in shock. Um, ended up fine. I ended up with a little bit of a, a bruised rib and some uh, concussion. So, maybe not fine. I ended up okay. Um, and spent the rest of the weekend in a Motel 6, uh, mostly in a Motel 6 bathtub with Epsom salts, just laying there trying to like nurse my bruised body and Jacob painting my toenails because I was sad. And I don't know. It was like, okay, this is the person I could be with the rest of my life. Um, so I think these stories illustrate one thing, which is we're good at love. Uh, <laughs> we uh, Love is definitely our forte. Absolutely. Um, and, and because of that, we started thinking about what movies kind of... Uh, what what movies helped us come to this understanding of what love is? Yeah, what movies exemplify love in the modern day? What movies really push push an understanding of what love is and how love should be best expressed? Yeah, uh, and of course we came up with a, an Adam Sandler movie. Famous, uh, <laughs> famous troubadour, Adam Sandler. Uh, a a uh, love connoisseur. Really, yeah. um, modern we, day Romeo. Absolutely, uh, we watched The Wedding Singer <laughs> twice, <laughs> twice in like a week. Um, and boy, howdy, there's a lot to talk about. There here. is. I, I I did not expect it. I I did it because Kay's partner Jacob kind of threw it out as a joke, and then I go, actually, yeah, because I didn't realize I watched this movie a lot as a child why um so i didn't know this until i was talking to my mom about it because okay it's one of those things where like we started watching it and i realized i knew every line in the movie and it was this really weird experience where i was like i guess i watched this i did watch this a lot and i don't know why and when i was talking to my mom i realized uh wedding singer was one of the first dates that my mom and dad went on my stepdad, rather. So, you know, obviously my stepdad came in the picture when I was five, six years old. Uh, they did not get a lot of alone time for obvious reasons. And uh, one day my mom called in sick at her job at McDonald's um, and they escaped to Cape Girardeau, which was the larger town next to us, which is hilarious to say that because it's going off to the big city to watch a movie yeah it's it's not that big they watched the wedding singer and my mom got caught because someone else was also up there watching a movie and when she went to work the next day they told her that she's been caught and the next time it happens she'll get written up 
So so was it worth almost getting fired over? I don't know. But she we did watch it a lot, I think, because it was a, a really good memory for my mom and dad. Um, and because of that, I, I guess I was more familiar with this movie than I remembered. So The Wedding Singer is a pretty formulaic love story, right? It's... Um, Boy gets stood up at the altar. Boy meets girl. Girl is engaged to be married to someone else. Boy and girl realize they love each other, end up, you know, sprinting through an airport, falling in love. To the T. It doesn't really deviate from a lot of expectations. There are a couple that we will talk about. Uh, So now that we kind of got the basic summary out of the way, uh, Kay, what was your first impression? Because this was your first time watching the movie. So... I want to talk about my second impression. I didn't like it the first time we watched it. I thought it was kind of dumb. But the second time I watched it, it, I don't know. I don't know if I just had just enough wine or if I was in a particularly romantic mood. But the second time I watched it, oh man, I thought it was great. I am continuously surprised every time I laugh at an Adam Sandler movie. Uh, Not because, well, I don't know. I don't find him particularly funny. It's just kind of that he plays dumb. Yeah, he plays dumb and he makes old people say inappropriate things. Yeah, yeah, but I was laughing. And I don't know if it's because I'm old now. I'm an old. Holds up relatively well. There's there's some problematic things and we're going to talk about them. Um, and I would like to point out just as your resident trans-friendly expert... There is a character that's played by transgender actress Alexis Arquette, and she plays a character that was heavily inspired by Boy George. Just exists. She is very rarely the punchline of jokes. She is allowed to cross-dress. I especially people like her. Yeah, I especially so the joke the the continuous joke that she is involved in is that she only knows one song which is uh the do you really want to hurt me you know that song yeah and so when robbie hart doesn't come back in time they literally just like replay that song and i don't that gag was probably like three times the movie and i nearly like cried left every time yeah because <laughs> it was just very good she's allowed to have a joke that's not her gender <laughs> yes and that's what I loved about this. And I thought that was very progressive for the time. So your friendly uh, trans snaps. We're going to make that a thing. Okay. No, sure. it's not going it. to be a no, thing. No, it's fine. I'm not editing that out, baby. So you just started it. <laughs> um, this movie passes the Betschel test. Um, fun fact, the reason it passes the Betschel test is uh, Drew Barrymore's character, Julia, is given a real meaty line to work with where she talks about to her sister, vomiting on her shoes and because of that line it passes the bechdel test they talk about something that's not the main character that's not the main male character and they talk to each other so this movie gets a little bit of props for that absolutely uh so the one big thing that i kind of want to talk about is um in movies so far we definitely have this very straight binary as to what is a good girl what is a bad girl what is a good guy what is a bad guy And in this movie, we finally kind of start seeing that gender expectations uh, exist on a spectrum. Um, And I kind of want to talk about the three kind of stereotypes of women um, first. 
in literature, there's this huge idea of the Madonna-Hawk dichotomy. That is, you have your Madonna, aka the pure, the untainted, the woman on a pedestal, versus the whore who is, well, the whore. The most obvious example I can bring up about this in modern TV is in The Handsmaid's Tale. You have the wives who dress all in blue, a pure color, who are not tainted by sex or by love or by anything. And then you have the handmaids who are quite literally the whores made to, you know, only as sexual vessels. And this movie does have that. You have the Madonna, a.k.a. Julia, who is pure and blonde and lovely and sweet. And then you have Linda, Robbie Hart slash Adam Sandler's ex-wife, or almost ex-wife, who left him at the altar, who is dresses like a, not to slut shame, but like a stereotypical slut. She dresses as though she is in an 80s rock music Yeah, video. and I mean, even down to her hair color. She has dark hair. It's wild. And it's poorly cut. It is very poorly cut. I talk cut. about haircuts a lot here. It's, it's a sign of my own anxiety because I'm never satisfied with my own haircut. I just want to make that clear. You have this Madonna horse stereotype or dichotomy, but you also have this middle-of-the-world character in Drew Barrymore's sister who is... Who, who really shows qualities of both, right? Yeah, she's... She 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 is free to kind of talk about her sexuality in which, you know, she very makes it obvious to Robbie Hart. She goes, you know, if you take me home, I will fuck you. Right. And but she also she wants a relationship and she wants love, too. So it's kind of presenting the qualities of both of these opposite binary dichotomy situations and doing middle road of that. And what's kind of even more important is this movie presents men in the exact same yeah, dichotomy. For sure. It mirrors the exact same thing with the three male characters, which I found really, really interesting. Yeah, so it starts off with Robbie Hart, who is pure of heart. All he wants to do is be married. He wants to be a family man. I want to talk about Robbie Hart a little bit more extensively because I also think that Robbie Hart is a nice guy trope TM. So I want to talk a little bit about the nice guy trope um, because... It's something that I find is really prevalent within romantic comedies as someone who grew up with 1980s, especially romantic comedies. It, it's this kind of underdog story, right? Where the underdog finally gets the girl and that underdog is always a nice guy. Um, if you're interested in what we're about to say, uh, go to our Facebook page because I actually put up an article from talking about this nice guy trope in relation to Dawson's Creek. It's from Bitch Media and it is fascinating. And I think it actually fits what happens in the wedding singer quite a bit. So the rules for the good guy trope follow kind of three specific things. So the first one is the man is suffering as a result of the woman's cruelty. So in relation to Robbie Hart, that would be his wife leaving him. Or his almost wife. His fiance leaving him. Yeah, at the altar. The second one is this like the seduction strategy you're working that you're doing isn't working. Therefore... You must learn how to be an alpha or you must learn how to woo women so that way you can get the girl. And that can be anything from in some movies you see something like, I'm going to knock you out. I'm going to fight you. I'm going to punch you. 
to, you know, aggression and violence to just knowing how to stand up for himself and what he wants. Right. Absolutely. And you, you see this as well. Like obviously at the end, he stands up in his own way to woo Drew Barrymore. Spoiler alert, they get together. <laughs> Shocking. Uh, yeah. And then uh, the third one is that he does nice things, um, kind of, and it says in order to get sex with them, but it, I think that could be an implied or very explicit, or I think, honestly, it could just be this idea of getting the girl, um, which... Getting the girl as the ultimate goal and prize. Yes, and... I know I was I was talking to to Kay about this last night and although we both agree that Robbie Hart follows the first two on the nice guy trope I want him to kind of talk about how Robbie Hart doesn't necessarily follow the yeah one. um I think Robbie Hart's character because he he is willing to let uh Julia get away when he thinks Julia is happy in her relationship he is not going to impede upon that relationship going to let her get away even though he loves her and I don't think he's doing all these things in an attempt to have sex or get laid or just or even just win Drew Barrymore's love a lot of what he does with her and to her and for her is genuine kindness and compassion her loser of an of a fiance isn't helping her plan a wedding so he steps in and helps her plan a wedding and doesn't try to stop that wedding from happening until it becomes truly unambiguously clear that she is not going to be happy in her marriage and I think that's really important too um one thing that's really associated with this nice guy trope is also the friend zone yeah um which is kind of this idea that and it applies directly to number three. I have done all of these things for you, and therefore I deserve you. Yeah. Um, um, everybody clap your hands. Who's been in the friend zone? Hey, guys, the friend zone doesn't exist. Don't That's do the joke. <laughs> don't do things for people in effort to get something from them. If you want to do things for them, just do it because you're a nice person. If you're doing it in effort to get something from them. You're not a nice person. Yeah, you're not a nice guy. And that's kind of point of the nice guy trope is that usually if you follow the nice guy trope you ain't a nice guy with that being said robbie hart nice guy trope kind of the same as drew barrymore but mirrored on a, a male side yeah talk about glenn glenn gulia is the witch bad guy he is going to be julia's new husband she's going to be julia gulia i'm sorry what julia gulia is there something wrong with that nothing he and julia have been together for a long time i think four years which in 1980s romantic comedy terms is a lifetime especially since most romantic comedies you only know them for a day and you said and um he is not a nice dude I he is sorry i also think it's really interesting that one of the things that makes him an os not nice dude is one he benefits from capitalism and two, he is not monogamous. Yes. <laughs> he is He is all about that cheating life. He is all about uh, using his money to get whatever he can. Um, and he's just generally a piece of shit. Um, he was he's not developed to be empathetic at all. He's developed to be just the 
the capital W Wust. And then lastly, we have the middle of the road character, uh, Sammy, uh, which, you know, much similar to Drew Barrymore's sister, like he comes across and it's kind of, I think, an attempt to mirror people like Glenn, right? He comes across to Robbie as you got to get, you know, you got to get laid, you got to get laid, you got to get over it, blah, 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 right? Um, But also there have been some really small moments of vulnerability in which he does confess that he just he's lonely and that he wants a relationship and then he wants love, Um, which is not something you see very often. Right. And one of the things that the producers of this movie when making this movie really wanted to emphasize was that marriage was the end goal. Marriage. This is a movie that celebrates relationships and marriage and every one of these men even though they wouldn't necessarily admit it want to be married Robbie most obviously he desperately wants to be married and to have a family but even Glenn Glenn feels like marriage is something that he owes to Drew Barrymore's character he's not going to engage in all the trappings like you know monogamy but he still feels like marriage is the ultimate end goal and is what is owed out of a relationship. And then finally, Sammy does too. Sammy Sammy secretly wants a relationship and to be married and to have that security. So it's a movie that uh, celebrates marriage from a male perspective, which I think is really interesting. Absolutely. And again, like kind of the overarching thing that I thought was really great with this movie is that they're moving away from presenting the this very binary idea of gender stereotypes and they're starting to view it that like I don't know man maybe just because you're a woman doesn't mean you act a specific way or a man it's it's kind of going more to a spectrum even though it doesn't highlight the places in between these three you know end areas and middle areas very well it is uh, it is evidence of progress which is something that I think is important to highlight yeah yeah definitely um so since you you have some role models here yeah hopefully uh Kay, what do you uh take out of these men that you saw in this movie so i think that obviously the character you're supposed to most most root for and most want to emulate is probably robbie um glenn is a cheater sammy is just confused um but robbie is someone who is just genuinely a good guy and not a good guy TM, a good guy. He wants he wants to have a family. He wants to have love and he wants to do things and accept Drew Barrymore just as she is, whether that means, a, you know, that he is going to end up with her or not. Um, and I think that as figuring out who my role models are, that's important. It's important to show a man that is vulnerable and does have depression and does have is mourning and is grieving over a failed relationship um i think that he gives a better role model um than a lot of the movies we've watched he in in parts of the movie he does things just to be nice he teaches an old woman to sing for and gets paid in meatballs he doesn't necessarily seek material things but rather he just rather he wants to do good in the world um and his way of doing good in the world is being a wedding singer and he has a place for that 
So as far as male role models, maybe not perfect, but certainly better than some of the ones we've seen. Absolutely. I think one scene that really um, turned around how I think they viewed men, and I, I do this a lot where I say, like, if this were much more like, you know, X movie, what would it be different, right? Um, and it was the scene where Robbie Hart sees Glenn out when he's drunk and with other people, right? And he's and Glenn starts to make fun of Robbie Hart. And eventually, Glenn ends up punching Robbie. And there was an opportunity there for Robbie to turn into the alpha male, right? There was an opportunity to get one on the bad guy, to win this situation through violence, which is, I mean, Jesus, we've which watched, is, I mean, we've a watched trope. 14, when, oh, yeah, it's a trope. And we've also watched 14 movies in which that would be the answer, right? The answer would be him punching him yeah. and knocking him down. Um, but they made the deliberate choice not to. Yeah. And, and of course that was for more like empathetic reasons to get you more on the underdog side, et cetera. But I still think that that is a choice that some other movies would make in, um, effort to present this traditionally masculine. Yeah, it's he. There's movies that that would have been the growth moment where oh he punches the bad guy, he grows up, and that's not what it is. He, Robbie is able to maintain his um, his naivety and his pureness without resorting to the typical male aggression. Yeah. So the second real big thing that I kind of want to talk about is I find it really interesting when I'm... So this movie was made in 1997 and it takes place during the 80s. So it's kind of a a historical drama when you think about it. (laughs) Um, And as someone who's been watching a lot of Miss Maisel and, and other... T- shows that are like that mad men miss Maisel. Exactly. shows that take place in highly misogynistic times exactly it's really interesting to me um because i felt the same way with the wedding singer where i'm confused as to if some of the things that are being said or done a representation of how they believe misogyny is at the time of production or if they feel like that is a representation of the time in which they're writing. Yeah. Are they are they playing up the misogyny of the 1980s in order to look back and create a mockery of it? Yeah, create, as though there's so much more progress now. Or is it or is it still a reflection of the misogyny that exists in the world in the 19 in 1997 yeah and i think i think that's what mad men and what miss Maisel does really well right is they're able to show that it's both they're able to present the misogyny of the 1960s i'm speaking specifically with miss Maisel to show that not a lot of, there there has been some progress made but not enough to be enough and I think about this a lot with Miss Maisel and the overarching question is women can't be funny because that would mean women are more than just their body, right? And how this was obviously something that was of concern in 1960. But if you've read the comments on anything with Amy Schumer on it lately, it's still a problem in 2018. So the, what makes these movies, what makes these TV shows and historical dramas so good is they're able to show that, 
right? They're able to show that, hey, this is a representation of misogyny within this time period, but also, y'all, this is a representation of things that are still happening today. Um, and I think that's what made... Uh, did you watch Black Klansman? I haven't. Okay, Black Klansman also does an amazing job at this, right? Especially with the ending where it shows like, hey, guys, yeah, this is a historical drama, but mm, not much has changed, right? And that's the commentary that you can make here, yeah, right? Not this... Man, 1960s sure was racist, right, y'all? Glad it's not like that anymore because that's not useful to progression. Yeah. And right? there's a way to to discuss misogyny and racism without and show that without necessarily condoning it or without patting ourselves on the back of how much further we are. Exactly, exactly. And and I could not tell the comment and and i know this guys it's an adam sandler movie the same guy who directed and wrote this also wrote click and Waterboy. so the fact that we are taking this little analysis super deep is is a lot i'm a, i'm aware okay um but i couldn't tell it still had a chance to make commentary on this right yeah, and it was still, it yeah and i and i honestly i couldn't tell it seemed way too cheeky it seemed way too i, I honestly couldn't tell if it was representing the 1980s and what the director slash writer saw was gender relations at that time, or if he literally was saying that stuff completely straight. Yeah. The women in this movie (laughs) face a lot of random harassment. I mean, part of it is that they are women working in the service industry and the service industry is known for its uh, poor treatment of sexual harassment. Um, And, but all of these characters face, or all the women characters face some sort of significant sexual harassment, whether it be getting their, um, getting groped or um, being put on the spot or things like that. And is it a reflection of this, oh, the 80s were so bad and women are being treated better now? Or is it just this is a cheap throwaway joke? Yeah, and I think... I want to preface my apology before I talk about Shakespeare again. I think that's what I, you know, Shakespeare, uh, when he was especially doing like um, his political stuff, right? Like uh, the Richard the Thirds, et cetera. What made it so great was that he was also providing commentary of politics at the time while also exploring the politics of what was written. Right. Yeah. And kind of showing that mirror. And I think, when I see aspects of that in TV shows and in movies, it, it, I think it really makes you think hard about how much progress needs to be made. And it makes you think, it kind of shows the hypocrisies of these people that are, are saying, you know, why are you still fighting? Yeah, because right? there is still a fight to be, to be fought. Yes, and, and I think it's also... I've been watching a lot of the Oscar movies and I just watched that awful film Green Book. And it's one of the issues that I have with Green Book is because it was almost this self-congratulatory one. Isn't this white guy so great for doing these, for treating black people like humans? And I'm just like, I don't understand why we're clapping for this guy for just treating people like humans. But also what could have escalated green book to be more than what it was 
is that it had a chance to make a commentary on the lack of progress and the lack of change and how we can't keep seeing these oppressions in a historical sense as though they are in the past because that means that we will stop fighting for progress that needs to be made in the present. Yeah. We, it's not good enough yet. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, there's some places where this movie ages pretty poorly. And I think the one scene that is most uh, indicative of this is where um, Robbie Hart's character is speaks to a quote-unquote loser and brings out brings out Julia as kind of the prize. Julia dances with him to show the other boys how little how much this kid is not a loser. And basically in that scene, everyone grabs everyone's butts. The thirteen year old grabs Julia's butt, Adam Sandler dances with another thirteen year old, she grabs his butt, all the old couples grab each other's butts, and yeah, you know, having a 13-year-old grab a grown man's butt, it is unpleasant. I mean, both are unpleasant, right? Because bl- both represent a lack of consent. Yeah. Like and even you, if so, man, uh, mm, 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 they're children. The idea of <laughs> the 13-year-old loser kid grabbing Julia's butt as a conquest as like, look how great I, look at what I won, look at what I get to do. Um, what is that teaching, uh, young men? Yeah, yeah, especially since it's kind of like a cheeky joke. Um, and it was so, man, y'all, it's wild times at my school that I teach because for the next two months, I have to sit with my ninth graders, my former eighth grader babies that I had all year long and I have to sit through sex education with them, and it's hard. Oh, man, that's an endowendo. That was a bad thing to say. It's difficult because they're babies, um, but also I-, I came from Sykes to Missouri. I did have uh, a sex education within my health class. Um, all I can remember was the very extensive amount of time we had to memorize all of the sexual diseases. Oh, God, yeah, the STD flashcards. Yeah, like, we literally had to memorize STDs and the impact of STDs and had to look at colors. Like, it was very much like... Don't have just, sex, you will get pregnant, and you will die. Yeah, just don't do it. Um, and we had a question day. Um, oh, fuck. I'm going to tell this story. It's embarrassing. This is just uh, the podcast in which I tell embarrassing stories about my youth. Um... We had a sex education day in which we could write on a uh, note card all of the questions um, that we had at the end of our sexual education course at, within health. And I mean, I still don't know how penises or vaginas work, to be honest with you. Um, and at the time on the card, I wrote, if a man is uncircumcised, does he still have to wear a condom? Because I was still very unclear about the circumcision. They work the same. Yeah, I, I'm just like, uh, you have something covering the penis. Like, that's what a condom does. Like, these things, like, look at these two pictures. How are they different? They're the same picture, right? Um, and I was being very legitimate, but I guess that was a stupid question because when I got to my health teacher, he looked at it 
And then he breathed really hard and he rolled his eyes and he goes, I'm not asking, I'm not answering idiot questions from idiot people. And then he threw my question away and I didn't find out the answer until I was like 19 and I asked Ryan (laughs) because (laughs) I wasn't going to Google that shit. That's how you get viruses. Not the STD kind either. Anyway, the point is, is I'm studying through sexual education and learning a lot about sex that I did not learn through my own sexual education. And it was a bizarre experience because, so we have, we, we actually hired Planned Parenthood to come in and give these presentations. And I cannot emphasize how great Planned Parenthood is. One, they're magicians because I have never come into a class of 30 stranger children, teenagers, and been able to quiet a room faster than a Planned Parenthood person can. Just through their embodiment of we're about to talk about sexual activity the entire class goes silent which is a magical feat upon itself but in addition to that she will just come in and be like hey guys what do you want to talk about today do you want to talk about healthy relationships do you want to talk about stds you want to talk about birth like just gives like all of these and they'll be like let's talk about consent and i was like wait that's an option you guys are talking about consent in sexual education class What do you mean? And I was thinking this is going to be very straightforward, right? If she says no, no means no. But it was talking about like the minor ways in which coercion to have sex can exist. And the way that they did this lesson is they gave all the kids a red, a yellow, and a green light card. And they would read scenarios. And these scenarios were not also just heterosexual couples. They were homosexual couples. And and when she read it, she literally did not blink of eye. I have never seen been seen someone so stable in front of a classroom before. And I have been teaching for 10 years. <laughs> right? Like, I've been in education for 10 years. I've been in front of a lot of kids. I could not sit in front of a classroom and not blink an eye. When someone made a condom joke, it's just not something I could do. I would lose it, lose it. <laughs> um, and they were just talking about small ways, right? Like how social pressure is impacts, you know, consent, how implied, like they, they gave this situation of two girls who were dating. One made more money than the other and, you know, one way that she loves to show her love is to give her girlfriend all of these gifts and how her girlfriend didn't want to have sex, but she feels like she should because her girlfriend is always giving her things. And the the revelation that, honestly, I've never considered this as a 28-year-old woman because I've never talked about this, right? They were saying there's always power in relationships, which we all, obviously, right? There's someone who has more power. And... The crux of the conversation is it is the responsibility of the person who has power to leaven the playing field. Here's the situation. How can the person who has power invite a conversation in which it leavens the playing field so that all expectations, all conversations are like completely out there, right? So like literally it is the responsibility of the person who's giving the gift to say, hey, I'm giving these gifts to you not because I want you to have sex with me. I'm giving it to you because I love you. I don't want you to feel obligated to have sex with me. And like making sure they're aware that it is the responsibility of the person who has power to do these things. It's wild. What the fuck? That is 
so different than what I was taught. And I'm so glad that it's being taught that way now. I, I'm a softie when it comes to my kids. They're the people that can make me cry the fastest, both for good and bad reasons. And <laughs> I was, I was in the back of the room and I was hearing these boys who I've had all year. Right. And they're just making these very insightful conversations about how, you know, it is not consent for this girl to have sex with this guy because she feels that she's been with him so long and all of her friends are having sex. So therefore there's peer pressure there and it's not consensual. So the guy needs to make sure to tell the girl that I will not leave you if you don't have sex with me. I don't want you to think that and literally verbalizing that. And I'm just like in the back of the room trying not to cry because this is, you know, we do this work a lot, right? And we see all of these really terrible things on the news about new sexual assault allegations and fucking Chris Brown. And I'm so sick of hearing about it, right? But we have to talk about it because if we're not talking about it, we're not making progress. And to be frank with you, the only time that I see progress in our society in which makes me feel hopeful is when I'm around my kids. And when I hear the conversations that they're having about mental illness and the conversations they're having about sex and the conversations they're having about immigration, like if the kids are making more sense than the president, I'm concerned, <laughs> but also hopeful. Yeah. I'm sitting in the back of the room and thinking about how differently my life would have been if all of the men in my life had these same conversations at 14. Yeah, absolutely. And would I have suffered so much sexual assault? Would I have had to be around so many toxic people who had so many troubling ideas about women? And, I mean, I think that it gives me hope, I yeah. guess. Yeah. It's progress is being made. And uh, I think The Wedding Singer is, prog uh, is is honestly, no matter how stupid the movie is, right, it was still fun. And I think it was evidence of that is progress is being made. In 1997, compared to the movies that we saw in the 80s yeah. and action films, et cetera, progress is being made. Yeah, progress is being made on what men have to be like and what women have to be like and how that there's not necessarily the same gender roles. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Guys, thanks for listening to today's episode. Um, thanks to Kenny Kenny OO for our theme song, Add 60 Seconds to the Bachelor's Test. You can find um, them at kennykennyoo.bandcamp.com. Uh, don't forget to like us at Mansplaining Podcast on Facebook. Um, hey guys, we're on Spotify. It's very exciting, but it, that's because that's where I listen to all my podcasts. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so we're on Spotify. Check us out there. You can binge all of our old episodes, get you real caught up on all those good mansplaining episodes. We're also on iTunes and Google Play. Um, make sure to join our mansplainers group. Um, this podcast is not for us to speak into the void. Yeah. We love discussion. We want you to talk to us. Uh, tell us what you think. Tell us if you think we're totally wrong. Tell us if you think that sexual education, tell us your embarrassing sex ed stories. Absolutely. And one way that you can share all of those things is by joining our Facebook group, which is Mansplainers. Uh, you can get to that by going to our Facebook page on Mansplaining Podcast. I also uh, tend to put up dumb memes and also any interesting articles that I come across as we are researching. 
So make sure to become a um, member. member of our Mansplainers group. And um, don't forget the other ways you can support the podcast. Um, and if you love and appreciate the work we do, you can talk about our podcast, share it, subscribe, or as we said, like us on Facebook. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, feel free to reach out to us at mansplainingpod at gmail.com. And you can send us movie suggestions as well. We love to hear what you want us to do next. All right, y'all. See you, mansplainers. Yeah.